warning, the following podcast, which contains strong language and mature content, is unsuitable for children or for the faint of heart. The subject matter discussed will be frightening and graphic in nature. Listener discretion is advised. When you want to hear about the paranormal, you get the spooked girls. True crime that makes you hypothermal with the three spooked girls. Stabby snippets will give you dreams. Tara and Jessica will make you. Along with the spooked girls Bring on the slaughter We on that haunted ground The three spooked girls Hey there, spooksters, and welcome back to another episode here on Three Spooked Girls. My name is Jessica, and as always, I am joined by my best friend, Tara. Hey, spooksters. Today's stabby. I'm still not doing another homicide hunter. I'm sorry, guys. Like, <gasps> dang. I need to get back at it, but I'll be real That's honest. Okay. Like, I'm just gonna be transparent with everyone. Every time I sit down to like watch it and take notes, I get up like a little bit of anxiety, panic attack, and so then I just can't. So that's <laughs> why this is where this has been. And that's okay. So mental health first. Remember that, guys. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So today I come to you with an article from listfirst.com. It's called 10 Real Life Plot Twists in Criminal Cases. Oh, fuck. Ooh, this is fun. I know. I was like, I was just like reading on, I think I just looked up like true crime stuff and this popped up and I was like, oh my God, I love a plot twist. Absolutely. Okay, let's do this. What? Okay, before we start, Mm. what is your favorite movie plot twist? I don't know the fucking the plot twist in the newer the second orphan movie was pretty fucking good. Uh, that's good. pretty good. I will say that I like the village that plot twist. Mm, you know I haven't watched that movie in so long. Well, it's the fact that they're like you know in modern times. <laughs> oh yeah 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 mm-hmm. yeah. See and you're like didn't we what? Go see that in the movies? Didn't we uh-huh. go to the theaters? I think that's the only time I've watched it. Damn. Now I'm going to have to rewatch mo- it. What was it? The Happening? <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. Oh, my God. <laughs> Every time I think of you and I going to a movie and then never watching the movie again, it's always The Happening. <sighs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> it's the one you don't need. <laughs> For real. <laughs> here's, the twi- here's the plot twist of that movie. They don't fucking die at the end. <laughs> They should have. Okay. So the first one is the Jennifer Pan case. Okay. I don't know if we talked about this. Okay. So Bic Ha and Hugh Pan, a Vietnamese couple, had the real life representation of a successful family. They had two kids, Jennifer and Felix, and worked in an auto parts manufacturing business. They had expensive cars, a great house, and their kids made great grains. On November 8th, 2010, The family, excluding Felix, who was not home at the time, were robbed at gunpoint by David, I cannot say this guy's last name, Milavanagram, and 
Linford Crawford. The father was shot once in the shoulder and once in the face. Bick was shot three times in the head and was pronounced dead at the scene. Han, however, miraculously survived with a broken bone over his eye, a bullet fragment in his face, and a shattered neck bone after being in a coma for three days. The daughter was not hurt at all, but had been tied to the banister and was the one who called the police. Jennifer was interviewed by the police on the incident while her father was in the hospital. She described how she had heard the robbers asking her parents for money and then hearing her mother crying. Oh, I, I have like a thought mm-hmm. where this is I going. Too. I, I think so. Keep going. <laughs> okay. When I get to the end of the paragraph, I want you to like give your prediction. Mm-hmm. She was trying to get her phone out of her waistband when she heard the gunshots. On November 12th, the father woke up from his coma and remarkably remembered the whole event. He told the police a very interesting fact. Okay. For those playing at home, what do you think the interesting fact is? Hmm. Now I'm so confused. Tell me. Jennifer had been talking to one of the robbers like a friend before the robbery occurred. Damn it, I should have just said Jennifer had, in fact, hired her friends with her boyfriend's help for $2,500 to kill her parents. Due to her protective parents, she felt burdened by the pressure that they put on her shoulders. Her grades had dropped from A's to B's with one F. But Jennifer continuously reprinted her report card, though the high school gave her parents one every year until she graduated. However, because of the grades, She didn't get into her dream college. She only pretended to be accepted and went to, and it's literally in quotation, (gasps) went to school every day. (gasps) What? When she went to the library, she actually went to her boyfriend, Daniel Wong's house or her job. Daniel helped her repeatedly keep the lies together. Eventually, her lies fell apart and she came up with the crazy solution. What if she killed her parents? Then they wouldn't have to deal with the problems they were having that were caused by her. Thus, Daniel and Jennifer began to plan it out, and all those involved were arrested in 2011. Oh my god. Good times. I had a feeling, I was going to say that, because there's another case super similar to that that happened in like, I can't remember, it, it happened in another country, but I remember hearing about it, and it was super similar. Oh my god. What are t- like The biggest twist in this is the fact that like her dad didn't die. Yeah. Have fun being in prison for your mom's murder. <laughs> and the attempted murder of your father. Mm-hmm. Could you imagine, like, waking up and realizing that your daughter had something to do with this? That, that would have been, like, mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Number nine. Carolyn Watson and the Satanic Cult. Mm-hmm. Carolyn Watson, 17, and Julian Mathis Buckwald, 22, were kidnapped and brought six hours away to Australia's Alpine National Park in 2008 by a satanic cult. Mm. The couple was celibate for both legal and religious purposes. Oh, they were a couple. Ew. She was 17, he was 22. Ew. Yeah. And Julian was already was already to propose to Carolyn for the second time. Jeez, she's 17. Bro, chill. Go find an adult. (laughs) Right. 
However, they ended up in the back of a van only to be thrown out six hours later. Mm, this has suspicious stories. Mm-hmm. Both of their clothes, <laughs> both had their clothes cut off with a knife and had been let out together in a grassy field with their hands tied. Julian managed to get up, walk over to Carolyn, untie her hands, allowing them to get up and wander around the field. They managed to find a bag stuffed with a sleeping bag, a toothbrush, a coconut, a knife and a shovel, along with a jar of peanut butter. Oh, my God. Like, if I found that bag, I'd be like, I don't want. No. Nope. <laughs> Whoever had this. Mm-mm. No, thank you. <laughs> the couple dove into the freezing river in fear of the kidnappers coming back and cautiously moved around barefoot and na- <laughs> barefoot and naked for a week around the field to avoid being found. Oh, the nights were freezing and they huddled together to stay warm. While, oh my God, I know where this is. This has to be going this way. Hmm. While it rained outside, taking shelter in the sleeping bag Jillian found in the bag. One night, he suggested they get married under the eyes of God before they died, ending their celibacy. However, Carolyn refused. Oh no. Carolyn refused the advance as she was determined to survive and was taken aback by Jillian's suggestion. Eventually, the couple found another bag containing their cut up clothes. And they made it to the road where they were picked up by a farmer who took them back to his house and then went straight to the police with them to file the report. However, instead of finding the cult, the police eventually arrested Julian. Why? I'll give you a few seconds to try to figure it out. Your thoughts? Why? Why did they do it? After being pressed by the police, it wasn't long before Julian actually confessed to staging the whole thing. (laughs) Yeah, I saw that coming. Right. His initial explanation of the event was described as amateurish in the extreme, in particular the failure devised with a plausible motive for anyone to kidnap the couple. This ultimately led to the unraveling of his ridiculous story. Jillian wanted to press his girlfriend into marrying and having sex with him. And he was impatient that she said she wanted to wait until until she had finished high school first. Oh, my gosh. That's just. Mm. So he decided to kidnap her instead. Instead of talking to her about it, of course. I mean, that's just logic. Just kidnap him. Julia was tried and found guilty in 2009 of kidnapping and torturing a victim for six days, earning him almost eight years in prison. The most ironic thing is that Carolyn said she would actually would have married him after she graduated. Wow. Interesting. Right. Okay, the next one is Damar Vera. In December of 1997, a fire in New Jersey, determined to be started by electrical cords, began to erase someone's home, and it took away someone's child. Luis Cuevas The mother had frantically ran through the house trying to save her three children, but found she could save all but one, her baby girl, Delmar Vera. The firefighting team announced that the little girl had died in the flames, and the family was devastated by the news. However, no one was more devastated than Louise. She screamed at the firefighters in Spanish that her daughter was alive but had been taken away from her. Louise, for years, would tell anyone that would listen to her that her daughter had been kidnapped that night. 
The mother would gain sympathetic looks from all those who knew the truth and tried to help her get through it, but she wouldn't listen. One day in 2003, so like what, six years later, Mm -hmm. Louise went to a birthday party where she saw a little girl named Aaliyah who looked a lot like her daughter might have looked at her age. She got a DNA sample for a test and surprisingly, the test came back as a positive match. The girl had been kidnapped six years before as a newborn by a woman by the name of Carolyn Correa, who then set the house on fire to cover up the kidnapping. The mother reflected on the day of the fire, explaining that she had gone up to her little girl's room and found the crib empty, but she was absolutely joyous to see her baby girl again. The daughter, however, did not speak Spanish at all. While the mother primarily spoke Spanish, leading to all, leading to some difficulties in transition for Damar, who decided to keep her name Aaliyah coming back home. Carolyn was arrested for kidnapping and arson after the discovery. That mommy knew. Damn. Number seven, Dolly Osterich. In August of 1922, yeah, we're going way back. Oh. Mm-hmm. Oh, do you know this story? Yeah, I did this story. <laughs> oh, wait. It's the attic this? guy. Oh, okay, guys. We're not going to talk about it. You should go back and listen. Oh, this is the creepy one where the dude like lives in the, like is the boyfriend and lives in the attic and yes, then and moves then they across move the, the country. Ca- yes. Oh my God. It's so funny. You met, like you're reading something with that included because I actually thought about that case earlier today randomly. So that's weird. Like it just came out it's of nowhere. It's a trippy ass case. It really is. It's, yeah. It's hard to believe that ever happened. Mm-hmm. Also like the fact when someone says don't go in the attic. Right. Okay. Number six is Angela Diaz. Angela Diaz was constantly being harassed by her husband's ex. The ex, Michelle Hadley, had impersonated her on Craigslist and responded to a rape fantasy ad that she found, sending multiple attackers to Angela's home. Oh my God. The story began in June of 2016 when Angela called the police crying, saying she had been attacked by a man who tried to rape her. Angela then started receiving emails from an unknown source, though she suspected it was from Michelle. The emails had a biblical tone in them, referring to Angela as Eve and Michelle as Lilith, threatening Angela and her unborn child with the words, I hope you are scared of death tomorrow. Be prepared. Don't sleep. Be watchful of the daughters of God. We will steal your child and we will watch it as it dies. Angela was convinced of Michelle's involvement when she received the the message, he's obsessed with me and I'm his treasure princess. You are nothing from Michelle leading to the woman's arrest on June 14th, 2016. Well, that didn't take very long. However, after looking more closely at the original IP address that sent the message at Michelle's family's encouragement, the police found that the emails had come from Angela's own phone. Uh. Even more, it was revealed through questioning itself that Angela herself, who had responded to the ad on Craigslist and sent the attackers to her own home to essay her. (gasps) After looking even further, 
it was revealed that the sonograms of Angela's unborn child depicting twins had been bought off Etsy. Do you know you can buy sonograms on Etsy? What the fuck? This is weird. That Angela was revealed to be a pathological liar. You don't say. This was not the first time that she had done this. She had manipulated several of her old friends and lovers before, even saying to her ex-boyfriend that she had cervical cancer, sending him (gasps) pictures she got offline of going to chemotherapy. What a fucking horrible person. But the story gets even more twisted. Shut up. Ian Diaz, Angela's husband and a deputy U.S. marshal, was arrested in 2021 and charged with one count of perjury, cyberstalking, and conspiracy to commit cyberstalking. It seems that the couple had planned the entire thing over a property the former couple, Ian and Michelle, co-owned. The mm-hmm. life lesson of the story, you can get anything off Etsy. Fuck. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> like, my first thought is, like, you can... Why, why are we buying sonograms off Etsy? Stop it, people. Stopping. No. Or you can do it like my brother's ex did and send my mom a picture of a squirrel. (laughs) A reverse image search is so fun sometimes. (laughs) Okay. Number five is titled Ryan Walker. In December of 2006, local police were called to do a welfare check on a couple by a concerned relative. The relative, Don Waller, had called because his son, Ryan Waller, oh, I guess it's not Walker, it's Waller, sorry. Ryan Waller and his girlfriend, Heather Kwan, had failed to attend Christmas dinner and had not answered his phone calls. Now, pay attention to the time, as it's pretty important here. When the police arrived at the couple's house on Christmas night at 11 p.m. and knocked on the door, it took a while for Ryan to slowly open it. When he did, the officer saw a large bruise on his left eye and cut on his nose. Ryan seemed disorientated, stating that he didn't know how he got his injuries to his face. But the officer's attention fell to the woman lying on the couch in the darkened room. Ryan said that she had been sleeping on the couch for a couple of days. And when the officer stepped inside to check on her, they saw that in fact... She was dead due to a single shotgun wound to the head. Oh, shit. The police immediately arrested a confused Ryan and threw him into the back of the police car for hours while more police arrived at the scene. Ryan sat in the police car for several hours before being transferred to an interrogation room in the Phoenix police station. The interrogation lasted an hour. Through the interrogation, Ryan's behavior gets weirder and weirder as time passes. First, the interviewer, Officer Dalton, reads Ryan his rights, but he realizes that Ryan doesn't know what these are. He asks Ryan if he'd ever seen a cop show on TV and is utterly confused when Ryan says no. Because we've all seen cop shows. Cops was on for like, (laughs) ever. As long as TV. Mm -hmm. When he asks him if he had a girlfriend, Ryan says no. When he asked about his face repeatedly, Ryan would initially say that he didn't know, but eventually stated that he was shot in the face. Officer Dalton, baffled by this, told him there was no way that he could be alive if this happened to him and dismissed it as a lie. Oh, this is going to be the twist is that he was actually shot in the face. Hmm. I bet. 
When he told that Heather had died on his couch, Ryan becomes confused, agitated, and distraught. He suddenly begins to tell a story of what happened to them, stating that Richie and his dad had come over and they had hit Heather and him with bows and arrows. The story itself is filled with contradictions and changes multiple times, and the officer doesn't seem to trust it very much. Meanwhile, Ryan is mentioning how his head hurts from this questioning. It wasn't until about an hour into the interview at 5.52 a.m. that Officer Dalton notices something in Ryan's nose. Bullet holes. Four of them. Wait, in his nose? How big is this dude's nose? I mean, unless it's like buckshot. I don't know. After Officer Dalton notices the bullet holes in Ryan's face, Ryan is rushed to the hospital. One bullet had gone through Ryan's nose on both sides and then ricocheted into the back of his brain where it lodged. The four pieces of his skull that broke off also lodged into his brain. A second bullet bounced off his skull, though it broke off another piece as well. In the hospital, Ryan's left eye had to be removed along with a piece of his brain. (sighs) On December 23, 2006, Richie and Larry Carver broke into the couple's house by shooting Ryan in the head when he opened the door and then shot and killed Heather on the couch before fleeing. Richie lived with the couple until he started hitting on Heather. Ryan obviously was upset about this and kicked Richie out. Richie, enraged by this, decided to kill them. They stole several weapons and a computer out of the house before leaving Ryan for death. It seems that Ryan had woken up later that day with a severe brain injury wandered around the house in an empty mind state. After the police arrived and jumped to the conclusion before checking his physical state, Ryan awaited an additional eight hours before being taken to the hospital. Every second that went by resulted in irreversible brain damage, and Ryan could no longer live on his own without his parents as his permanent caretakers. Ryan would die 10 years later due to a seizure from a traumatic brain injury. Oh my god. Wow. That is a plot twist. For real. Number four is entitled The Two Frenchmen. (laughs) On August 4th, 2017, two bodies were found around a dinner table keeled over. Oliver Bowden and Lucien Payat had seemingly died simultaneously, and the news that a speculated murder had taken place terrified the country. The two men had been heartily drinking and feasting on roast beef, canned beans, cheese, and a baguette when they both suddenly dropped dead. It wasn't until the next morning when a neighbor spotted that the two men hadn't moved at all in a couple hours. Okay, your neighbor is nosy, Mm -hmm. but thank God for your nosy neighbor. Right. After trying to stir them by splashing water on their face, she realized they were in fact dead. The police speculated that the tend beans had been poisoned to ensure that the two men would, be, would succumb to death and sent the beans and the other food to the lab for examination. The results came back negative. When that failed, the country thought perhaps they had committed joint suicide. I love that the, the country is weighing in on this. It's all of France. <laughs> all right. They're like, we're very invested. I mean... <laughs> But perhaps they'd committed joint suicide, which was immediately put down due to Lucian's being in good spirits earlier that day. So the country, again, the country began to believe that Oliver had committed suicide and then asked his friend to do so as well. But yeah, but they died simultaneously. 
Hmm. Only that's a bit messed up, right? Later in the investigation, the autopsy revealed that Lucian had choked on the roast beef due to missing teeth and not chewing correctly. Then Oliver, who had a heart condition called cardiomagalia, an enlargement of the heart, died of a heart attack after seeing his friend die in front of him. (gasps) That's so horrible. That would be like super traumatic. For real. Oh, my God. Number three, Agneta Westland. Agneta Westland went on a walk with her dog through the woods on a cold September day in 2008. However, she did not return as she decided to walk through the woods in typical horror movie fashion. Ingmar Westland, her husband, became worried about her and set out to look for her after she didn't return, only to find her battered body lying in the woods not far from the nearby lake. Ingmar, obviously devastated, called the police and led them to her body. The police immediately suspected and charged Ingmar with murder, arresting him on the spot. He was held in police custody for 10 days, but remained as the prime suspect for six months afterwards. Now, I know you know this story is about to have a plot twist, and you're starting to see the pattern. So I'll just go ahead and tell you now. First, Ingmar is not the murderer. Of course not. Why would he be? Police later determined that it was actually a drunken elk. Whoa. (laughs) Yes, an elk. (laughs) Oh my God, no. You can call it a moose if you'd like. I think those are different. Those are different animals. Very different. (laughs) A moose is fucking ginormous. I don't think an elk is as big as a moose. (laughs) No, no. (laughs) That was very sad that I didn't see a single moose when I was up there. I know. Damn. Makes me sad. Like a week later, you sent me a video of a moose, and I was like, fuck this. Mm-hmm. Fuck that moose. <laughs> Authorities collected samples of fur and saliva from Agnita's body and sent them for testing, confirming that they did, in fact, come from a European elk. It is theorized the elk munched on some fermented apples, causing it to end up in a drunken, more aggressive state. And then Agnita was walking her dog and the dog barked and agitated the moose, elk, those are not interchangeable, causing it to attack her. As for the antagonizing dog, its whereabouts are unknown. The moose, question mark, is still at large to this day. So do watch out for a murdering drunken moose in Switzerland or in Sweden. If it was a moose, maybe the moose ate the dog. Right. Okay, number two. Sharon Marshall. In 1989, a couple who went by the names of Sharon Marshall, 21 at the time, and Franklin Delano Floyd, at least 29 years older, at least 29 years older or old, I don't know, got married after their son Michael was born. They immediately started having marital problems, of course. Because Franklin was physically and mentally abusive towards her, Sharon understandably wanted to leave him. This unfortunately led to her death at the hands of Franklin in a hit-and-run accident in 1990. Franklin then kidnapped Michael and shot him twice in the head the same day. However, that's not where the story ends. After digging deeper into Franklin's past, the police discovered more shocking revelations. Franklin had gone through a horrible past where he was abused and essayed in a children's home where he tried to escape but failed. Once 18, he worked at the Atlanta International Airport where he kidnapped and molested little girls 
and then escaped prison after oh robbing a God. bank. Until 1974, Franklin lived off the grid, evading police officers and keeping a low profile. He met a woman named Sandy Chipman and under the alias Brandon Williams, married her and brought her to Texas. Sandy had three daughters and one son from a previous relationship before marrying Frank and they seemed to be getting along. It wasn't until 1975 that Sandy went to jail for 30 days for writing bad checks that she would return to an empty house. Franklin had kidnapped the children. Oh my God. Right. Franklin dropped three children off at the adoption center where the son was adopted and only found out that he was Sandy's son in 2020. Whoa. Sandy, right? Sandy was able to track down the elder two daughters before anything happened to them, fortunately. The last and eldest daughters, Susan Marie, however, remains missing. Uh Uh-oh. Shockingly, police discovered that Sharon Marshall was in fact Suzanne. That Franklin had raised her as his daughter and then turned him turned her into his wife. Oh Franklin God. was not initially arrested for Suzanne's death or kidnapping, despite this confusing story. Instead, Franklin was detained by the police for an incident in 1989, the murder of Cheryl Ann Comesso. The police discovered the photos of Cheryl's dead and beaten body alongside photos depicting the physical abuse of Suzanne went through under the hands of Franklin's quote-unquote fatherly teachings. And I use the term loosely. Franklin is currently on death row for the murder of Cheryl and is being investigated for Susan's death and kidnapping. What do you, it's so much later. Right? That, that story was crazy though. Oh, my God. Yeah. Number one. We've made it to the end. I'm ready. It's called The Father of a Murderer. On December 10th, 2003, the Whitaker family was getting ready to celebrate an upcoming graduation of their son, Bart Whitaker, from college. When the family members heard a knock at the front door after Bart got home, they answered the door with a smile. Tragically, they were met with the barrel of a gun held by a masked robber, who then shot and killed 19-year-old Kevin and Trisha, the mother. Bart and his father were shot and rushed to the hospital, but without two members of the family. As police investigated the matter, they discovered something chilling. The murders had been orchestrated by someone else. The man who had killed the mother and son was a hired hitman and was tasked with killing the entire family. Well, only three of them. Bart Whitaker was, in fact, behind the assassination that night. How did we not see that coming? (laughs) It was revealed that this wasn't the first time he had tried to kill his family. Several, several. Bro, The word several is written. (laughs) I was like looking for one. Several previous attempts were made. Knowing the police were closing in on him, Bart Whitaker fled to Mexico, living on the down low. He was eventually caught by the Mexican police and sentenced to death. However, Bart is not the plot twist in this story. Rather, his father's reaction is. Kent, who wrote the book on the ordeal called Murder by Family, reflects on his time with Bart after the murder, where he speaks about Bart's guilt eating away at him. He explains Bart's self-image was so negative that his life meant very little to him and the lives of other people even less. He concluded that since he claimed 
to have given him life, all the problems were really our fault. Oh, like he's victim shaming himself. Mm. Kent said he forgives his son for killing the family and pled with the judge not to kill the only family member he had left. In his words, I'm not asking them to forgive him or let him go. I just want them to let him live. His pleading led to his son being let off death row just minutes before receiving lethal injection. His sentence was changed to life in prison instead. Well, those are like two plot twists. For real. I don't know. Like, as I'm not a parent. So, like, I don't know how I'd feel if my child tried to kill me. I don't think I would be happy about it for sure. Mm. Right. <laughs> I could hold a grudge if I really want to. Mm. So, like, I don't know if I could get over that. Yeah. <laughs> like, I think this would be one of those moments where it's like, I love you, but I never want to see you again. For real. You murdered your mother, you murdered your brother, and you tried to murder me. Exactly. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> Bye. <laughs> right? For realsies. Mm. Well, that's going to wrap up this stabby. We hope you enjoyed it. I hope you were playing along at home and guessing the plot twist before they happened. Mm-hmm. Yes. Some of them I did not see coming. Some of them I was like, that was obvious. <laughs> I mean, I'm never going to get over the several attempts. But one, it's just gonna, I'm going to be like tomorrow. I'm just going to be like typing away and be like several attempts. Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. With that, we're going to go ahead and wrap up this episode and we will see you back here on Monday for a regular episode. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.